0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials.
1: Today we're talking consumer goods.
0: Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd, and I'm the host of this consumer goods-focused episode, Emily Flippin. Today I am joined once again by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma, and we're going to talk about another e-commerce reseller that's headed to public markets over the hopefully somewhat near future. Thread Up, Asit, how are you doing today?
0: I'm awesome, Emily, and I am really excited to talk once again about clothing, about threads. What a, what a nice name this is, Thread Up. Sort of like what up, <laughs> Thread Up.
1: It is a nice name and it actually, I think, summarizes its business pretty well uh, in a way that we don't see often with resellers. But in case it wasn't completely obvious, a lot of what they're selling are, are items that have been, you could say, you know, moved up, right? Recycled up the value chain, threaded up, and uh, they're essentially giving new life to millions of items of clothing that people are looking to get out of their closets. We've talked about Poshmark in the past, so hopefully, all of our listeners are somewhat familiar uh, with this this industry and the market opportunity headed into today's show. One of the things that I wanted to talk about as it relates to ThreadUp, and this is going to be a little bit of a spiel before we get into the actual business, is the personal experience I have with ThredUp. Uh When you reached out to me and mentioned that this company had filed its S-1, was looking to go public, I was really actually excited because very rarely do I come across, especially e-commerce businesses focused on clothing that I'm already personally familiar with because as we, we joke, I tend to be a little bit of a, of a thrifty person when it comes to spending money on clothes or I guess I should say not spending money on clothes. Uh, but I have a personal experience with ThreadUp. So if we rewind to about a year ago and we're looking at the pandemic, we're all stuck at home. I suddenly have a lot more time on my hands to do things like watch videos, in particular videos on YouTube. I found myself going down this weird, somewhat dark place of YouTube, watching mostly women do these things called uh, unboxing videos with ThreadUp Rescue Box. So they had small businesses uh, where these people would order boxes from up unbox them on camera, and then actually take the items that they were sold and then resell them on other platforms, mostly Poshmark and eBay, and sometimes even back to ThreadUp. So it's this weird sub-business that exists in the reselling market where any inventory that sits on ups hands over an extended period of time, they're able to simply put into a mystery box, sell these mystery boxes to people who then unbox them, and then attempt to sell them themselves. And it's interesting, it's weird, but it's also just I think a wonderful thing for the world, not just because it's making entertaining content to keep me entertained for months during a global pandemic, but also because it's extending the life of clothing that otherwise would end up in a dump or in the garbage being completely wasted. So It ends up being a pretty good thing for the environment. And As we talk about the business today, I think investors will find that that's a trend underlying a lot of the themes of this episode is, is sustainability.
0: So, Emily, I'm laughing because, you know, you said you went down this hole and it was sort of got to be a little bit of a dark place. Now, I went back last night and watched a few of these videos because you had mentioned this when we were prepping the episode and I could see how it could quickly become dark for me because... um, many of these people have super skills. So they're pulling the clothes out of the box and they're showing you like seams that are invisible to the eye and this is why they rejected it. So I'm going to fix this here. I'm going to take this stain out. I'm going to put a hem here. And I started to feel very useless. What have I done with my life? Look how... (laughs) Look how amazingly handy <laughs> these folks are. They're contributing to the circular economy. They're, they have a side hustle. Uh, they're doing well by the environment, all kinds of things. I could see like watching a lot of those. For me, that would be the darkness of that hole. But we all went down into our own personal, I think, YouTube rabbit holes at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> Nothing too unusual there.
1: And I think that it, it's it's so important because there's a skill when it comes to determining what clothes can be resold, how much money you can get for them. And we we kind of joke about it seeing it on a small scale with these creators on YouTube who are clearly very talented because they have the ability to immediately pull an item of clothing out of a mystery box and know what they can get for it, right? Looking at these little things and determining what value is subtracted based off the pilling of the material or whatnot. But that is actually applied to on a bigger level at ThredUP. So we can kind of talk through the business cycle for ThredUP. It exists with just you or I, the average person who is looking to, say, clean out their closets. And the person goes on, you know, maybe Google searches where they can thrift their clothes to and ThreadUp comes up and they'll actually give you a box, uh, give you a bag that you can put your clothing in, ship it to ThreadUp, and then ThreadUp pays a commission when those items sell through their platform. And it ends up being a good thing for the person who is selling the clothing because they get a percentage commission off of a clothing that would otherwise have probably ended up in the garbage. It's a good thing for the world because it's one less piece of clothing in the garbage. It's a good thing for buyers because they're getting a piece of clothing. For a discount. And then for ThreadUp operating this platform, it shows a level of skill and their ability to pull clothing in and determine if they can sell it. And if so, how much they can sell it for. So it really is a business that benefits from the learning ecosystem that it creates based off the number of items that it brings in.
0: Absolutely. And they have spent a lot of money to develop software, which gets better and better. Obviously, Applying artificial intelligence and machine learning, not too dissimilar from other platforms that we've seen come public in the last several months. You know, it's such a, a unique business to me. It reminds us of other platforms. You mentioned Poshmark, which is also sort of reselling clothes and that you're selling peer to peer, you're putting clothes up um, as a listing, someone else is buying them. But it also has similarities to another company called The RealReal, Real, which works on the same type of consignment model. But that's luxury items, uh, a really different type of business model, and working on a different average selling price. I was surprised, Emily, that—or maybe I shouldn't have been—that ThreadUp has an average selling price of about seventeen bucks, and for a company over the long term to be able to make good money off of that type of selling. Price point is pretty impressive, and it, it gets into some of the economics that you alluded to. In other words, being able to really efficiently figure out uh, through automation, automated software, et cetera, what items will sell, how to present those items, how to manage that inventory. I think they do all of this really well. They process um, a ton of items. They've got three distribution centers across the country, and collectively these distribution centers, let's call them DCs uh, from now on, they're capable of holding about 5.5 million items collectively in inventory. The other really cool thing that they do is they assign a unique stock keeping unit or SKU to every clothing item they process and they can process about 100,000 SKUs per day. Now, why is this impressive? Well, most items that we're familiar with have barcodes on them. It's really easy to to get a SKU just by pointing a device (laughs) at um, a barcode, but they have been able to generate SKUs or or find a way to do this without having any barcodes on the clothing. And we'll talk a little bit later about how they they store their clothes and what these DCs uh, look like. But I think it's an interesting platform just in in that it combines so many different parts and pieces of other platforms we've talked about, but it's a unique model.
1: I actually love how you connected it to the Real Real because I think my first impression, having been somewhat familiar with ThreadUp's platform from a consumer's perspective, not from having looked at any of their S1 or their filings, my impression was that it was going to be closer to a Poshmark or an eBay than something like the Real Real. But they really do have a unique model. And while their price point is below that of the Real Real, I think investors can often overlook the the intelligence that comes behind a lot of the work that they do in terms of, of their SKUs. A lot of their business depends on accurately determining the value of items that they're getting in the mail from people. They don't know the backgrounds of it. Uh, they may be missing items, right? Like maybe there's a tag missing. It becomes a challenging business model to to kind of create. And they're doing what these individual sellers, like I mentioned on YouTube, are doing where they're applying their own individual knowledge, but they're collecting the knowledge in the aggregate and applying it to millions and millions of items across all of these distribution centers. And so from a, just a business perspective, I think I have a lot of respect for the time and the energy and the work that goes in behind the, th- the scenes to making ThreadUp even exist.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, We should point out that this company, as of now, isn't trading. It's going to start trading any day. Um, I believe the symbol is going to be T So T D U P. Um, And I also wanted to talk a little bit, Emily, uh, about its two major revenue streams. So we've already mentioned one, which is selling clothes on consignment. So I send them a kit of my clothing. They put it on sale, basically. And as those items are purchased, then I'll get a payout. So consignment, pretty easy to understand. But they're also doing something that they call resale as a service or RAS. (laughs) So when I saw this acronym, I thought, wow, there must be some kind of really automated software type of innovation going on here. I guess it is innovative, but Resale as a service is simply their name for getting retail partners like The Gap or Madewell Jeans or Reformation or Walmart, all of which they have partnerships with, and helping those retailers to sell uh, used clothing directly back to customers or to participate uh, on the platform with this company. So Remember this acronym, RAS. This is a secondary income stream or revenue stream. But I think it also shows some of the potential of the platform over time to partner up with a lot of retailers and help them participate in the circular economy. It's a way to also broaden out their own gross merchandise volume, that is the total amount of dollars that are transacted over their platform.
1: Yeah. Traditional retailers have been left out of the upcycling that exists with the reselling. And when you think about the breadth that retailers like Walmart have, and the scale that they can have to push people who are budget conscious towards resellers as opposed to buying new, especially given the trends in fast fashion that I think a lot of younger uh, consumers are more and more aware of. It's a natural expansion. And I remember when Walmart made their initial partnership with ThredUp, and I believe it was mid-2020. I remember thinking in my mind that I thought Walmart was going to make a play to acquire ThreadUp or, or to maybe integrate ThreadUp more closely in its business. I actually love the fact that ThreadUp, to this point at least, has stayed relatively independent because it allows them to partner with more and more of these traditional retailers as opposed to being pigeon-held to one. Either way, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting strategy for them to make these traditional partnerships. And again, generally, a good thing for the world.
0: I think so too. You know, in their S1, they're, they're offering documents for their IPO, they mention three trends that they think are going to propel the business forward and why they think they'll have such a wide audience in the future. The first is generational shift. So this is millennials and Gen Zs who are sort of shifting their preference, from new clothes towards resale, and I can attest from having friends that are a bit younger than than me and uh, Emily Flippin being one, and also my kids, that this younger generation, I should say younger than my generation, is really into the idea of the circular economy, uh, getting vintage clothes, just the thrill of going thrifting. So I think they're on to something there. They indicate in their prospectus that these two groups are adopting secondhand faster than any other age group. They're also pointing to this rising interest in sustainability, which to me is sort of uh, a slow trend. It's something that many of us have been watching for a long time. The idea that we can live a more sustainable lifestyle is not something that's ever caught fire. But I think with every passing year, more people become aware um, that we've got to live in a, a fashion and manner that doesn't harm the planet. So this is a growing, but a slow-growing trend. And thirdly, they just point out that second-hand is becoming mainstream. And I would say this goes for a lot of stuff, not just fashion. I think of electronics that I've purchased in the past few years. Some of them have been reconditioned. My kids, again, th- this younger generation, challenged me a couple of times uh, over the last several years. Dad, why are you buying this new you can reuse something essentially by buying it reconditioned. That's better for the planet, and you'll also get a discount. And it's just as good as new. And I, I never was a believer in that, being more old school. But now I'm, I'm a happy convert to this type of thinking.
1: I think my favorite aspect of the S1 was the letter from James Reinhardt, who's the co-founder and CEO of of ThreadUp. He founded the company back in 2009, and the letter kind of goes like you would expect every S1 and co founder letter to go, except for he includes this visual diagram that he drew out about what he perceives to be ThreadUp's competitive advantage. And one aspect that I think really gets at the generational shift in this diagram he drew was unlocking supply. It was one of the key aspects of driving this do good flywheel competitive advantage. But really, his aspect was. We have a generation that wants to do the right thing. That is increasingly trying to do the right thing, but it's challenging because the vast majority of online or the vast majority of thrifts or or recycling upselling it all exists in person. And this is a generation that likes things to be seamless, like things to be digital. Are more accustomed to making online purchases, so. I love that he highlighted the aspect of reducing the friction of trying to do the right thing. When you look at your closet and you have too much stuff in it that you're trying to get rid of, you want to do the right thing. You don't just want to dump it in the garbage, but at the same time, if you're a young person, maybe you're living a very digital-centric lifestyle. So Having a platform that uh, reduces the friction, expanding the market um, and makes cleaning out your closet easy, while also making the buying process as seamless as possible as well, I think has long-term value. And I, I loved seeing that written out or visually, I guess I'm a visual person. I love seeing it so visually written out directly in the S1.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. Basically a sketch in his own handwriting. And I really like the principles that you've laid out, Emily. This company started as a men's shirt swapping company because James Reinhart literally did just this. He unlocked supply. He opened his closet door <laughs> and noticed it was full of clothes he didn't want to wear. And uh, he decided to do something with that supply, hence, this business, uh, which now is, is going public uh, probably in the next few days.
1: And one other aspect before we move on to some of their financial metrics, because it is important to talk about their financial metrics, but one Aspect that I saw them break out, which I was surprised not to not only see them break out in the S1, but how the numbers actually fell was the demographics that were purchasing on ThreadUp's platform. It does skew young, which you would expect. It does skew, uh, it does skew female, which again you would expect. But the one thing I didn't expect was household income. And when you look at buyers and sellers on the platform, the single largest demographic for income. In the ranges of there's less than 30,000, 30,000 to 50,000, 50,000 to 100, and more than 100,000 is actually the more than 100,000 bracket. So it's not just people who are looking to save money out of a perception of necessity, but people who are presumably, presumptively pretty well off that are looking to just make more budget conscious and environmentally, decision, environmentally friendly decisions. So that was one aspect. I saw that and I had to reread it because I, I didn't really believe my eyes.
0: <laughs> it, it's such a great point because it reinforces their thesis that there is a market for this resale. And it's not just a market that's uh, comprised of, of, let's say, economic necessity, which would be at the bottom of that demographic range. It's something that crosses all demographics and is especially pointed once people accumulate enough wealth to be, be comfortable or, or enough annual income to be comfortable, they actually turn their attention to these very things. How do I live a more streamlined life? How do I clear out that closet? How do I do well by the environment? I I found that fascinating. In fact, the company itself, um, and, and we'll get to this, I'm I'm prefiguring here a little bit of my thought on this company as an investment but this is an idea that you know I, f- I feel like it it may take some time to develop but over the long run the the market is there the product is good um, the the technology they bring to the table is pretty impressive so it's it's a company you can sort of visualize getting into a steady profit state a steady cash flow generation state a little easier than some other e-commerce platforms that we've looked at
1: and speaking of financial state, maybe we should move on to some of their, their financial performance and key metrics. Uh, this is about on par for the course of what I expected in the business. We have a rapidly growing industry, but again, an industry that doesn't seem to be able to generate any any movement on the bottom line. So this is not a profitable business. But when you looked over some of the metrics and the analysis from the S1, what stood out to you, Asit?
0: Yeah. So Emily, I was Actually a little impressed by bad financials. <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> let's let's talk about the metrics first. So uh, a couple of things that I've learned from you in looking at these platforms to, to pay attention to really didn't show up. So we should say here that in a investment prospectus, in an S1 statement, you get to choose exactly what details you're going to disclose to prospective investors. Now, the best case scenario is when you disclose as much as you possibly can about your metrics, and that helps investors make an informed decision and should pump up demand for your stock if, if you're doing well. Um, they were pretty selective with the metrics that they shared. One that I look at, so gross merchandise volume, the this is, again, the, the total amount of dollars that's transacted over an e-commerce platform during a given period. While management discussed ways in which they wanted to grow gross merchandise volume on an annual basis, they actually didn't disclose what that total was, which makes it a little hard to compare to other platforms. Another thing which I didn't see, and, and again, this is what um, something I've learned to pay attention to from watching you, Emily, is their cost of acquiring customers. I couldn't find anything that really nailed down what that customer acquisition cost was, and I didn't see any metrics on user churn, so how customers are leaving the platform or decreasing frequency of ordering. Now, they did have some pretty decent metrics on their growth. They broke out their active buyer growth, and you're going to see a pattern here. So I'll just throw out some numbers here and and then we can discuss them. Active buyers grew 10% year-over-year in 2018. They grew 48% year-over-year in 2019 and 24% in 2020. Similarly, orders grew 28% year-over-year in 2018, then 34% in 2019 and peeled back a little bit to 27% growth in 2020. What's going on here is uh, COVID-19, which impacted the cus- company's revenue growth. What they did was in the second quarter of last year ThreadUp decided to start incentivizing buyers, incentives, promotions, discounts to make sure that they didn't lose customers during the pandemic. So you would think that would increase revenue if buyers and orders growth they're increasing, but because they net out those incentives and discounts promotions from their top line, it actually had the effect of muting the revenue growth. and That's why it dropped from 2019 to 2020. These are the, the major things that stood out to me on a glance at the metrics. Um, any thoughts on this, Emily, or, or anything that you saw that caught your eye?
1: It was interesting to see what they did and didn't break out. and I agree with you. This is a business and uh, we, you know, I think we've talked about it before we start taping, but this is a business that spends a decent amount on advertising. If you're somebody who has watched TV or maybe you watch certain channels on YouTube, I mean, ThreadUp is not a business that is entirely word of mouth. So in my opinion, despite their unique business model, it's still relevant to think about customer acquisition costs. And you highlighted something that I have been mulling over for at least the past Day. And I don't have a good answer for it, but why they have such a decrease in the gross profit by cohort. So, one of the metrics they did break out is gross profit, which is important given the consignment model. So, I understand why they're focused on the gross profit as opposed to just gross merchandise volume. But they broke out the gross profit from each cohort. And t- you pointed out that there's a significant drop off in each year's cohort since 2016 after the first year and while it seems like it steadies out a little bit admittedly at a very smaller at a very smaller level than what it was prior i can't quite wrap my head Around why there is such a steep fall off, and it's actually concerning to me because what it says to me that it is, in order to grow revenue, they need to grow customers. That they're not doing a great job of engaging existing customers, which is a little bit of a concern, especially when you see the significant fall off. And it's not just 2020 where we see that; it's 2019, 2018, 2017. Uh, this is a problem that seems to have persisted.
0: Yeah, it's curious. You know, they have bouncing out there that each year the new cohort tends to contribute sizably more gross profit than the year-ago cohort. So Think of it this way. Every year, the new customers are contributing more gross profit in their first year than customers contributed in their first year the year before. But again, neutralizing that is that drop-off from the previous year's cohort uh, from year one to year two. Now, when you put it all together, they have a nice graph in their S1 that shows the trend from 2016 to 2020. And basically, that gross profit is growing every year, and that is helping them uh, scale their business so that they will see some operating leverage hopefully sometime in the future. But it is something without the other types of uh, user metrics that other competitors have disclosed when they went public, we can't really piece together quite what's going on here. Maybe in that first quarter earnings report. They'll uh, be asked by analysts to explain, and we'll get some color there. But for now, it's sort of guesswork. So maybe some some minor demerit points there. But we should say, on the flip side, their gross margin looks pretty good for a resale platform. Last year, they achieved a gross profit margin of 69%, and they achieved a 75% gross margin on their consignment business, which they started to short, sort of shift completely to, starting in 2019. So uh, you can put those two together and and say the picture's not uh, really not that bad. But we'd love some more information to understand these numbers just a bit better.
1: Yeah, I agree. And again, that picture is is further muddied because, as you mentioned, I think around you know nearly 80 percent of their orders come from. Repeat customers. Uh, So, finding a way to monetize those cohorts, right? The people that they've already spent money to acquire, even better than what they're doing today, retaining them in a stronger way in their second year, I think is maybe that's a great opportunity for them. Maybe it's an area that they can genuinely work on and that alone would help increase their gross profit uh, as an overall number. But to your point, yes. It's wonderful to see that they're pulling in new customers, that the new customers are increasingly contributing more to that that medium line there, I guess I should say, the gross profit line.
0: For sure. And I wanted to quickly mention a couple of other things that are going to help drive that gross profit margin and those gross profits over the next few years. One thing I really liked about this company is that management is obsessed with automation. They remind me, Emily, of Revolve, who we did a deep dive on, I think, in December of last year uh, on Industry Focus. In that Revolve, which is another yet another fashion retailer with an online platform, has a management team, again, also holding inventory, And their management team just wants to make things more efficient. So some of the things that stood out in this S1 is that ThreadUp has developed these algorithms to predict demand for a seller's item, as well as the optimal payout to offer to the seller. So there's no human intervention there. This is done on pattern recognition. They've one upped this by automating one of the most expensive parts of the resale process for any online fashion retailer, and that's photography. They have internally developed software that automatically chooses photo sessions that will drive the highest engagement among potential buyers. So when products come in, the software tells the equipment exactly how to take the photograph. I thought that was really cool. And they're doing hundreds of thousands of high quality photos continuously, 24-7, without the need for professional photographers. The other thing which really is going to help drive that gross Profit in the future and gross margin is this automation of distribution centers. They have these prototype centers. I mentioned they've got centers in three areas of the United States. Within these areas, they've got sort of an older model and a newer model distribution center. The newer model distribution center uses a patented conveyor and hangar system that extends three stories high. To maximize efficiency, and if you've seen a picture of this, you can Google it on the web. It's futuristic looking to me. It looks like someone took a dry cleaning business <laughs> and and pulled it up three stories. It's pretty cool. They think that this newest type of distribution center, which is so highly automated, is going to help keep pushing those gross margins. And they show that actually the newer uh, distribution centers have an appreciably better. Average contribution profit per order. So I think this will benefit the company in the long term. They're very focused, as you said, on this idea of extending gross profit because if you can do that and control your fixed costs, you've got that path to eventual profitability.
1: I wasn't even sure if I should mention this in this episode because it feels so uh, maybe just tangential to the conversation. Uh, but if anyone has poked around on ThreadUp's website, I'm not sure if they the same reaction that I did, which was, you mentioned the, the photography that goes into all of these, these outfits, right? They're essentially just single pieces. Uh, oftentimes they get one or two in stock, they're gone. and They may not see that one again, at least not for a long time. Well, the way they have it set up is that every single item is placed on the same mannequin in the same background. So when you scroll through the site, Unlike looking through Etsy, unlike looking through Amazon or Poshmark or any of these other sites where you're getting all of these different backgrounds, all of these different lighting situations, you can't really quite tell what is what, having all of the, the presentations exactly the same on the same mannequin, all your size, it's, it makes shopping so simple and so easy. And I am convinced it's because of that focus on automation that management has. It it really makes the resale process feel less like I'm reaching into somebody's closet and pulling something random out, and more like I'm making a genuine, almost like new purchase on a perfectly legitimate website.
0: Yeah. You know, Emily, I'm I'm no MBA, but I know (laughs) this is something they teach in MBA school that if you can make the process easier for the customer, you'll accelerate your throughput and your sales. They seem to really have done that. They've taken that to heart. And I think the money that management has spent both on the software side and in the physical equipment uh, is to their advantage over the long term, which which takes us to this equation. We should talk about the financials just a bit. Um, Emily, I know I've thrown out a few impressions to you. What did you see when you're looking through the financials and then I've got some thoughts as well.
1: Well, I I have to admit, I was a little less impressed with the financials than you were because as we've seen with most resellers, it could be hard to make an entry into the reselling market, it's a slow-moving market. People have been slower to adopt it than I think we want. Uh, po- or, Poshmark Poshmark, <laughs> ThredUp themselves said they do less than I think 0.1 percent of all of the potential resold col- clothes in the United States go over their platform. And while it's an opportunity, it also means that they have a lot of challenges in convincing people to use the site. So as their revenue has dramatically scaled up over the past year. To me, it was a little bit of a red flag that their losses really hadn't moved, especially their operating loss. I, I know you maybe take it a little differently because in comparison to other resellers, at least they're not losing even more money, but I wish that their their net income or their income statement had scaled as their top line has scaled. and We haven't seen that yet, which is a little bit concerning to me.
0: Yeah. I think those are really valid points. Um, let me go over some numbers, and we can talk about those. So last year, they lost 48 million bucks on 186 million dollars in revenue. If you look just at their operating loss, that's a percentage of about negative 25 percent. So this loss percentage has held fairly steady over the last three years. I think it was 22 percent maybe two years ago. It's hovered in this 22 to 25 percent range over the last three years. So. Revenue is scaling, but Emily, as you point out, it's not really dropping to the bottom line. What I liked about this is when you compare this to other uh, competitors, and maybe we're picking on Poshmark today. We've talked about them a lot. We did a deep dive in January. I know, I feel so bad. It's It's so
1: top of mind.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was top of mind. But uh, they have not been able to scale as successfully. So Poshmark has a faster growth rate or a higher growth rate, but they are losing a little bit more money as they scale. And I think that they actually have an even greater allocation of expense to sales and marketing. The other thing which I'm going to give them a little pass for is that they did slow down uh, some of their processing of inventory during COVID. Now, that was partly because they wanted to protect employees. So, they had some inventory buildup. And I'm wondering, what the effect of that might have been on just being able to sell last year? Maybe we would have seen a bit higher sales. That's sort of what invent, uh, management has indicated in the S one in their narrative that COVID impacted sales in in these various ways. And I, I tend to believe that, seeing the inventory. So I'm wondering maybe if we would have seen a little bit more drop to the bottom line last year had it not been for having to slow down uh, the the human components at these distribution centers. The other thing which uh, I noted as a, I guess a yellow flag is that they've been cash flow negative each year for the last three years. Last year, they had negative 19.1 million in operating cash flow, which means they burned through about 19 million bucks in their operations. but they also had 19.4 million dollars in fixed asset additions. So if you're one of these people who loves to look at free cash flow, that's about 40 million dollars in negative free cash flow uh, last year. I also noticed that working capital deteriorated over the last year. So, if you look at their current assets versus their current liabilities, this ratio dropped from a really healthy 2.1, per, 2.1 times last year to 1.2 times by the end of 2020. And this simply means that they've got a little bit less of a margin in the current assets like cash and inventory to cover obligations that are due in one year. Now the IPO should net thread up between 141 million and 163 million. So this solves the the couple of problems I just talked about. It solves the cash burn problem. It solves the problem with working capital. You can then take a look at the, this total financial equation. What I like is that they were able to control those fixed costs. So remember, as they scaled, uh, they didn't really see that benefit hit their bottom line, but the loss didn't widen, which is a signal to me that all things being equal, if they can continue to control that fixed asset base and then tap more of this supply or unleash the supply, unlock the supply with the current gross margins they have, which are slated to grow by probably a few percentage points over the next few years, I could see this company becoming profitable more like uh, a revolve which is already profitable also manages inventory but does it very carefully I, I could see them becoming more like a revolve in the next four to five years
1: I could see that as well and I mentioned early on that one of my hesitations was just the slow adoption maybe I was I was overly bearish on on my perception of the adoption of resell because it is coming. And one of the things I did like that we haven't mentioned, or I I mentioned briefly but didn't get into, was uh, really the market opportunity. And I liked the fact that uh, ThreadUp split their market opportunity, which they saw as a $20 billion industry today, into two different categories, uh, thrift and resale. And I have to be honest, not only pre-reading the S1, but also during this podcast, I've really been using those two words interchangeably, but they actually refer to two different things. Thrift being uh, items that are resold that are not curated, and then retail being items that are selectively sorted for sale. And the resale is what ThreadUp really is; their their bread and butter, right? They're making choices about which items to post on their sites, and that's the segment. Of the secondhand market that's growing the fastest. That's only $7 billion in 2019. So those most updated numbers, but it's expected to get to $36 billion in 2024. So an over 30% CAGR over the past five years or future five years, which is a big opportunity. So I can see their, to your point, having some scalability in their financials, especially as their market expands that we're not seeing today.
0: Absolutely. It's something that has been under. I think many investors radar screen this whole explosion of resale. It tells you why Walmart wants to get in on the game. And it also shows you why companies like Levi's are getting into this game as well. Levi's went it alone and they have their own store called Levi's Secondhand, but it's a huge market. So why wouldn't companies try to participate in this? And I do like that they've got this sort of fast industry to play with. If they just can grow as quickly as the market, then that's a really phenomenal double-digit growth rate over time. So I also like that uh, market opportunity. So Emily, we've got, I guess, just a few minutes left. Um, I wanted to talk about the social creds that this company has really quickly, <laughs> Go uh, for it. because you, know, you can't talk about uh, ThreadUp without mentioning this. They really want to do well by the environment. So I'm going to read you some stats from the S1 for those of you who are, who are interested in companies that have a focus on sustainability. they say that they have cumulatively saved or displaced a billion pounds of carbon emissions uh, from the atmosphere since they started the company, and they've saved 2 billion kilowatt hours of energy, also have saved 4.4 billion gallons of water also wanted to mention that they discuss the breakdown of their employees and their management, and to point out it's not just their customer base that is female, but I think more than half of their employees are female, and I think about 30% of ma- the management team is female. So, uh, If you also like diversity in management and employees, they do that pretty well as, as well.
1: But with every good thing, there always there always has to be negatives, right? And we can't have as as our frequent listeners know, we can't have a podcast where we don't talk about the negatives. and i'll I'll kick off what I think is some of the bigger risks here. and i I've made a name for myself, so I need to keep up the name Asset. This is a company that has, Weaknesses in their internal controls. I'm not even sure if I should be mentioning this problem anymore because it has become so pervasive in virtually every company we see go public. And in my mind, I had attributed a lot of that to the SPACs, right? To the unexpected publicness of formerly private companies. But this is a traditional IPO. And I'm not sure if there's an excuse. While they are aware of these issues and they're looking to remediate them, I'm definitely a little bit more aware of the fact that ThreadUp, alongside virtually every other company I've looked at over the past year, just can't get their internal controls right. And I hate it. I feel like it's uh, it's the least you can do if you're going to ask us to give you money.
0: I agree with you, Emily. And part of it may be the allocation of resources in these companies, which is, I'm going to call it backward. <laughs> so, you should be spending some money upfront on your accounting and financial reporting because you never know. <laughs> and I, why I'm saying this, I tried to give a pass to another company we looked at very recently by saying, you know, they've grown sort of as a uh, tech company. They have they're a very a good tech platform. If you look at their hiring, they hired mostly engineers in the early days, sort of looking at accounting and internal controls, financial reporting, all that came later and they decided they would take advantage. And we were actually talking about, I think, a SPAC company on that day. But if you think you might go public and you've been around since 2009, it sort of behooves you along the way to bulk up your reporting processes, to bulk up your controls, to make sure that if you ever decide that, hey, the market's great, let's go get some funding and go public, you will look pretty good on paper to an auditor. But it seems like there is such a gold rush in the IPO market that's going on now. And by gold rush, I simply mean there is willing capital. Investors will buy a lot of ideas that are out today. I think some companies are changing plans and and staying Private at at a smaller interval than they did. My my beef is the same as yours. But if you think that might be an eventuality, why not go ahead and take that cost up front and build out these controls? I I wasn't pleased to see these uh, either.
1: Yeah, and I I and to, in their defense, they did identify them and try to fix them before going public. But that was after it had already resulted in a material misstatement in prior years. Uh, so again, it it feels. It feels like this really important aspect of what it means to be an investor and, and maybe this is a soapbox that I just I get on and it's a hill I die on but it feels like a really critical aspect of evaluating a business is knowing that you can trust the numbers that you're being presented what management tells you and I hate seeing that because uh, I go back to the first date example it's like being on a date with somebody and, and not having a clue if anything they told you was true about themselves uh, but I don't want to harp on it too much I, I know for a lot of investors that isn't quite the deal breaker that it can be for myself and I I'm increasingly trying to get over it. But the other big risk that I see personally is I I just wonder about what happens to discount retail. We've seen a lot of traditional retailers, their inventory end up on the shelves of discount retailers. So off, you know, it's off-brand, even the Targets, the Walmarts of the world or TJ Maxx, uh, Burlington, all of these businesses that make money by going after thrifters and playing into this experience of finding exciting thrills while you're just, treasure hunt, that's the word I'm looking for. And I have to wonder if if people don't like the in-store shopping experience as opposed to online, especially as it comes to discount goods or resold goods, since the vast majority of these sales happen in person, I worry a little bit about long-term what ThreadUp is able to gain in terms of market share for this industry.
0: I think it's a great risk to point out. There are a very few companies who do this extremely well. You named one of them TJ Maxx. They've got this global group of buyers that's been together for a long time. And they are just really astute at buying out, just close out merchandise of good brand names, and they pull people into to the stores. So this is a big risk for any business that is, is trying to take a slice of, of this market. I guess the um, advantage that they've got is they're pulling inventory, a lot of inventory right now from people from sellers who are cleaning out closets. But as they extend this, again RAS, so resale as a service and offer it up to other retailers, they increasingly intersect with companies like TJ Maxx, uh, who could be a competitive threat in the future as that business grows.
1: Very good point. it's interesting business I'm excited about it I have to say I think I'm more generally bullish when I think about the risks here I I feel less worried than I did when even looking at oh not the throughout poshmark I feel terrible we've been harping <laughs> on it so much but I feel better about thread up than I did about Poshmark I still think there are a fair number of questions uh, but personally I'm interested in this one I, I think I'm not gonna let this one sit as I do most all IPOs. Uh, but I like it I liked it more than I thought I would
0: Same here, Emily. I am really thinking that there are only going to be a few players in this space over time that that grow into very persuasive investments. But this could be one of them. And the reason is that aggressive market growth that you mentioned, and the fact that they have a a really great system for taking in the, the merchandise, for displaying it, for moving that merchandise. So I think these advantages if they can grow them will play out in the future. There's only I think so much space though for online resale of of used clothing if it's not the luxury segment. <laughs> so and and we're talking here again as we did at the outset about an average price point of $17, but so far they've got sort of the niche in this. So I will also be following them from quarter to quarter and I, I also feel better about them then I did Poshmark, which has a higher price point, but bigger losses and not as clear a runway to becoming profitable over the long-term to me.
1: Completely agreed. Asit, as always, thank you so much for joining me for the conversation.
0: This was really, really fun, Emily. Thanks so much.
1: Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, feel free to shoot us an email at fool.com or tweet at us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For at Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on!